Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. I ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In the fall of 2011, we started teaching through the Gospel of John. In October of that year, Dr. Larry Witt and I uh, co-taught through John chapter 4. He took verses 1 through 24, I took 25 through the end. And it's a passage on the Samaritan woman, most is what I want to look at this morning. And it became one of my favorite passages, just in four years of serving on staff and teaching through the text, this became just one of my favorite passages and lessons or narratives in the scriptures, one of my favorites. And so that's what I want us to focus on and look at this morning here in John 4. The Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, the question is, you know, why did it become just a favorite? This was kind of near the end of my time of being on staff. And there were a couple things. I think this was the, par- this was the, the story where it just finally hit me about the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're talking about the Samaritan woman at the well. You learn about the cultural and social norms of the day. And it made me realize really quick, it really hit me hard, just how powerful the par- Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is. If you remember that parable, lawyer, the scribe comes up to Jesus, says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have this interchange, and, and the lawyer seeking to justify himself said, then, well, then who is my neighbor? Jesus gives this parable right here. And you're, you're immediately saw, you see the priest and the Levite who passed the man who fell among the robbers and passed him on the road, and it's the Samaritan who is the neighbor. And then that, I was like, okay, I've known that story, but when you realize from John 4, the rift between the Jews and Samaritans, that would have been a very powerful parable. And so that was one, one thing that really stood out to me, thinking back um, to teaching through John 4. The other thing is, I, like many of you, identify so much with a Samaritan woman who, before Jesus, thought satisfaction or wholeness would be found in other things. The other one is, you see Jesus' compassion. And I just, as I've aged, I, this is just really stands out to me as I read through, especially through the Gospels. Jesus' compassion, Matthew chapter 8, comes up to the man who has leprosy. And what would have been ceremonially unclean to touch him? Jesus heals him by touching him. And here with the Samaritan woman at the well, there's some social taboos that are being broken here. You see the compassion of Jesus. And then the big one, Jesus came to save sinners. Praise God. Whether you're Nicodemus, the moral, law-abiding Pharisee in John chapter 3, or you're the Samaritan woman who's on her sixth man, you need Jesus. And that contrast is put right by side by side. I think John does that purposefully for us here in the text. And here's the thing. So Naomi is going to be gracious to work through all the. I got a lot of slides for us as usual for those of you who know me. Um, John chapter 20. This is a verse that's kind of a go-to. John chapter 20 verse 30 to 31. Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And all this points to the fact that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, and by believing him you may have life in his name. So that's just kind of, that's the end of John, and so everything kind of points to that, that ver- those two verses right there in the book of John. So I want us to read through John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 42. It's a significant portion of the text, which is, but it's, we're going to dive in. So follow along with me in, your, in the Bible or here on the screen. Therefore, Verse 1, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Verse 16, he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have, is not your husband, this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one asked, or no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me, all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So, the, when, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Praise the Lord. So here in John 4, we read about an encounter that Jesus has with someone completely opposite of Nicodemus, like I said in John 3. John 3, who Jesus had said, You must be born again. You must be born again, otherwise you can't see the kingdom of God. And we see here in John 4, salvation spreads beyond the borders of Israel. Right here with the Samaritan woman. So look at this slide. Look at the contrast between 3 and 4. Nicodemus, 
male, thoroughly Jewish, morally precise Pharisee, Samaritan woman, female, Jewish half-breed, sexually immoral. Nicodemus is named. We're not given the name of the woman. Do you see this contrast right there? I was saying a little earlier, this contrast here, the fact is both need Jesus. Both are encounter, have an encounter with him. Years ago, we had a college venture weekend, and we, we uh, formatted a little bit different to where we all came up here and had our sessions, and Dr. Bill Cook was our, our teacher for that weekend. He's a, he was our hermeneutics professor at Southern, and he came, and he, he, he said, I'm writing this commentary on the book of John, and he's been doing it for years, and it finally published two years ago. So here's what he says about John 4. He says, the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is one of the most touching and beloved stories in the Bible. This story reminds us that Jesus came to save sinners. So two takeaways from our text this morning. Two, just two primary takeaways. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what John's showing us in the text. Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus came to save sinners. He is the Messiah, and he came to save sinners. So this morning, I'm, I've broken up our text into sections based on the Samaritan woman's comments. So she has, there's seven times that she's recorded as talking. And so we're going to look at those seven sayings and, base it, and break it down like that. So here's the first one. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? So let's just break down the text here. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? So here's the context. Jesus is wearied from his journey. He took the path to Galilee through Samaria. He's wearied from his journey. He's sitting at Jacob's well, which scholars point out today is still in operation. Been producing water for 4,000 years. As of today. He's sitting at Jacob's well. And the fact that it's the sixth hour most likely, it was, it was noonday. It was 12, mid, you know, noon, midday. And she said, you know, and if you get this context, this, this little parentheses right here, in the first part of John, it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you have an NIV, there's a footnote that says, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. So there's, there's a likelihood this had to do because he says, give me a drink. And later on she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So we know Jesus doesn't have any, a cup or bucket to draw with. And so there is high likelihood that this was also talking about utensils. They don't share utensils with one another. The hatred of the Jews was so strong that they considered themselves unclean for even touching, much less drinking from the same cup as a Samaritan. So how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Because I'm a Samaritan woman. So there's, there's kind of the utensil issue, the bucket, the cup. Then there's also the Samaritan rift. All right, look at the Samaritan rift. Now, do you know how far back this traces? Probably about 700 years. 722 B.C., Syria comes in, takes over. When the Syrians conquered Israel in 722, they left a remnant of Israelites there and imported hundreds of pagans. And the resulting intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles produced a mixed race called the Samaritans. The Samaritans accepted only the first five books of the Bible. The Old, I mean, the Pentateuch. And sometimes, and they, so I mean, they ignored Psalms, they ignored prof, the, the prophets, and their central place of worship was Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. So there's just this rift, Samaritan to Jew, rift. And then just the fact it's a big deal. He's, Jesus is a rabbi speaking with a woman of that day and age. That is a big deal. He, the text says in John 4, 27, at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. He said there's kind of three social taboos that are, that are being broken here. First, Jews and Samaritans felt disdain toward one another and would not speak to one another. Number two, for a Jewish man to speak to a woman that he did not know was considered inappropriate. And then number three, Jesus knew this woman had lived an immoral life, and here he was having never committed a sin. 
So you see this kind of these three taboos that are being broken. Again, I say I point out, you see the compassion of Jesus right here. So what did Jesus say to her? You look in the text. He says, if you knew, he tells the woman, she says, how is it that you being a Jew asked me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So then it gets to point number two, or comment number two. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Which is ironic because he is greater than Jacob. Greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, someone greater. I mean, you, you know later on in the text, you see those sayings. But she's thinking of literal water. And the disciples are going to think of it later. Like, does someone give him food to eat? When he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Like, does someone give him some food? Nicodemus, how can a man be born again into his mother's womb again? There's like this literal thinking. She's thinking of literal water here. You're not greater than our father Jacob. One commentator gave a good point on this. He said, he had a great summary statement. He says, to obtain water on this spot, even the patriarch Jacob had found it necessary to dig a well and to provide the means for raising water from deep within the hole. If Jesus was offering fresh water without expending the energy to dig or using the means provided, he was either greater than Jacob or a cheap charlatan. And so that's kind of the thought, wait, are you greater than Jacob? I mean, he, he, Jacob had to dig. How are you going to give me this living water, this flowing water? This is kind of well water, which is, we've seen well water. Can, can look stagnant, can look, it's not moving. <laughs> like, how are you going to give this living water to me if you're not going to dig? Are you greater than Jacob? She kind of can understand her question. Jesus answered and says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So what is this living water? And we don't have time. We could probably spend a whole lesson on living water. Um, I'll just give you a quote from D.A. Carson here. He says, the living water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. Let's and quickly turn over to John 7. Look at verse 37. John chapter 7, verse 37. This is, the pair, uh, this is the Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of the Booths. Remember, there's three big feasts in, in Jesus' day, Pentecost, Passover, and the, pair, uh, the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles. And during the feast, there's, there's, a, there's drawing of water that goes on. In verse 37, now on the last, last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so if you want to look further into the phrase living water, look at John 7, 37, right here, and also John 4, 10 and following. And so Jesus says this to her about living water, and she says, this is the third point, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way to draw here. Again, she's thinking of the literal water. I don't have to come here. I don't want to be thirsty again. I don't want to come here and draw. The fact, here's the thing, the fact that she's coming at 12 noon likely meant she was a social outcast. A lot of scholars are agreed with that, that, that women of the day would come in the early morning to draw water. And here she is coming at noonday. She's coming by herself. She's coming at the heat of the day. So she's likely social, socially as an, out, as an outcast. She says, give me this water. And I, and I love this transition right here into verse 16. I, I the more I've been studying this, just really this stands out to me. She says, give me this water. And what does Jesus say? Verse 16, go call your husband. You're like, what? what? 
Why'd that, where'd that come from? What? Go call your husband. But it's, it's oh, masterful, masterful. Jesus is revealing her need for the living water right here. He's revealing her need. He goes straight to the heart. He offers her living water and then reveals her need for it. Beautiful. And she was attempting to quench that thirst through these relationships, likely. She's on her sixth man. Look at point number four. I have no husband. Verse 17. She'd had five husbands and now with her sixth man. And we don't know how many of these had deceased or were divorced. We don't don't know. But we get the real sense that she lived with shame or had this loneliness. Again, she's coming to the well by herself at the hottest part of the day. When Jesus reveals his knowledge that she had had five husbands, how would you feel if a stranger would reveal a detailed knowledge about your past? I mean, what, you know, like, I mean it's kind of like if you walked up to me and said, Kurt, you remember that time in high school? And I'm like, hey, did you see the Auburn game yesterday? You know, I want to pivot it, you know? You want to pivot the conversation to something else. And, and it's kind of like you look at, look at number five here. He says, go call your, he, he says, you're right. You, you, the man you're with not, right now is not your husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And she's like, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> Our father's worship, and it's kind of this, you think there's this pivot. There may be, uh, our father's worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And so some, some might think that this is a, a pivot of the Samaritan woman to try to shift the conversation away from her personal life, and it might have been. It could be also that when Jesus points out the Samaritan woman's sin, her first thought was that Jesus would advocate her going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, which shows that she thought that works and or location or something she did would, would bring salvation possibly. Sal- and we know salvation is nothing, not something we do or some, where we go. Rather, it's something God does for us. He saves us. And Jesus replied in verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so I want to take a little bit of the phrases right here, just talk real briefly. Um, I just, I really like the, I mean, this really stood out to me the last few days. An hour is coming and now is. Is it coming or is it? Yes. An hour is coming, now is. What you see is there is a change in redemptive history taking place right here with Jesus. An hour is coming and now is. He's not yet at the cross. He's here in another passage. He says, my hour has not yet come. But an hour is coming and now is. Redempt- the change in redemptive history is taking place. He says the phrase, salvation is from the Jews. Again, I'll give you a quote kind of to help. I want to provide some succinct com- quotes here to kind of help us journey through this. Carson says, whatever else was wrong with Jewish worship, at least it could be said that the object of their worship was known to them. The Jews stand within the stream of God's saving revelation. They know the one they worship for salvation is from the Jews. And so you see, Samaritans believe, believe the first five books of the Bible. Don't embrace the Psalms. Don't embrace the prophets. Everything that's all these other passages pointing to Jesus. And so he's saying you know, they stand within the stream of God's saving revelation. So that's, that's kind of the background behind Jesus' statement here of salvation being from the Jews. They have the covenant. They have the prophets. You see this Jewish history. And so look, let's look at also spirit and truth. It's a quote from John Piper in uh, Expository Exaltations, a new book he wrote. He says, I take in spirit 
to mean that this true worship is carried along by the Holy Spirit and is happening mainly as an inward spiritual event, not mainly as an outward bodily event. And I take in truth to mean that this true worship is a response to true views of God and is shaped and guided by true views of God. For this and other reasons, I argue that Jesus broke decisively any necessary connection between worship and its outward or localized associations. It is mainly something inward and free from locality. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So there's just kind of a quick little breakdown here. What does it mean, salvation from the Jews? What does it mean, an hour is coming, now is? What does it mean by in spirit and in truth? Just a couple little points here for that, that text of Jesus, what Jesus was saying here. And that gets us to number six, or sixth comment. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus then says, I who speak, I who speak to you am he. This is the only occasion before Jesus' trial where he directly acknowledges his Messiahship. Where's he at? He's in Samaria. In Jerusalem, for him to say Messiah, there's, there's this political big impact that would have taken place. You know, they're looking for this political Messiah to throw, overthrow Roman rule. But in Samaria, there's not this political expectation. But this is the only place you'll see before his trial where he directly acknowledges his Messiahship. And at this point, the disciples return, and they're amazed he's speaking to a woman. The woman leaves her water pot, a valuable possession, leaves her water pot and immediately goes back into the city, and then we see her seventh statement here. Come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And it's the last thing we have recorded of her here in the text. So here, here's uh, so here, just some, some commentary on this, a little quote from R.C. Sproul. He said, she didn't go to them and pronounce that she had suddenly become a righteous woman, a paragon of virtue, and issue a command that the community follow her. She simply told the people that she had met the Messiah. She knew that she had been redeemed by that encounter, and she wanted everyone in the town to know it. It's interesting. You know, what's interesting is, um, I'm kind of jumping ahead a bit here, but I think, I think partly I, I, there's... Some commentators say this, and I, I see a little bit of it. When Jesus says, lift up your eyes, the fields are white with harvest, I, I, part of me wonders if that was a little general rebuke to the disciples because they had just gone into the city. The Messiah was outside the city. And from what we know, it didn't seem that they had told anybody he was there, but yet the Samaritan woman whose life's changed goes and tells. And now they're all coming outside the city to meet him. She had been changed, been redeemed. So notice the change in the Samaritan woman. This is what I love about this passage. Just You can see it. How is it that she calls him a Jew? How is it you being a Jew? So there's the phrase right there. Then she goes on and calls him a prophet. You're a prophet? And she says, come see this man who told me all the things I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? Just see that heart being broken. Love it. Love it. Then the disciples urge Jesus to eat. So let's look through the rest of the, the, rest of the passage. The disciples urge Jesus to eat, and p- the people are coming from the city to him, and he says, I have food to eat that you do not know. Like I said earlier, the disciples took a literal rendition, meaning of that, like, does someone give him food to eat? I don't know about. He further explains, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I think Jesus is so absorbed with the matter at hand, he's not going to stop and eat. I like this quote by John Calvin, he says, by, this, by his example, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority, priority over all bodily comforts. I think you see that here in the text. He says, I have food to eat that you know, you don't know about. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. 
It's basically, they do not need to wait before reaping the fruit of the gospel. Look at the Samaritans coming right now. The time is now. The time is now. You think harvest is four months off, but I'm telling you that these fields are, are, are need reaping right now, immediately. And then we jump down to verse 40 and through 42. That the Samaritans should urge a Jewish rabbi to stay with them. Attests not only to the degree of confidence he had earned, but their conviction that he was none less than the promised Messiah. And John emphasizes the Samaritans' faith by repeating the verb believe three times. Verses 39, 40, and 41, and 42. The point is that the woman's testimony bore fruit to eternal life. And through their encounters with Jesus, the Samaritans come to know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. I love that phrase right there. This one is indeed the Savior of the world. So, we see the seven sayings of the Samaritan woman through the text here. Kind of just want to give you some just commentary as, you, as we go through the back and forth between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And I'll leave you with three points of application to pull from this. Number one, Jesus shows that addressing the heart or sinful condition is the greater need versus physical, give me the water, give me the water so I don't get thirsty anymore. It's the greater need, the heart. He pointed out the reality of the Samaritan woman's sin, and then he, he pointed out his identity as Savior. You see those two things going on right here in the passage. And Jesus understands her heart and condition. She didn't. He addresses the heart, which I love. It's just like, um, remember the story of the paralytic man being let down through the roof? They, you know, it was crowded in there, and they let him down through the roof. If you're the paralyzed man, what do you think your greatest need is? I want to I walk. What does Jesus say to him? Friend, your sins are forgiven. Straight to the heart. That's his greatest need. That's my greatest, that's your greatest need. And then, of course, the Pharisees are like, who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love this. He says, what's well, easier to say for me to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? It's easier to say is just to say your sins are forgiven. But he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And get up and walk. But he went straight to the need. That's our need. Our greatest need is for, our, for us to be redeemed, to be reconciled to the Father. And that comes only through Christ. Second point, all of us are thirsty, and only Jesus can quench our thirst. Think back to, if you Go back and study John 7, 37. Stands up on the last day of the feast. Says, all who are thirsty, come to him. Once we turn to Jesus and discover in him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can drink again and again. The spring always flows, friend. The life Jesus gives is dynamic and vibrant. It's not like the stagnant water of a well, but the energetic and exciting water from a flowing stream. I mean, they're, they're just, think of the imagery. On the, con on the flip side, when we look for satisfaction in other things, people, career, fill in the blank, anything apart from Christ, we end up more parched than before. I always say it's like drinking salt water. Still thirstier. C.S. Lewis calls it, and I think it's in Screwtape Letters, he says he calls it an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. It's like if we struggle with pride, this is one example, because if we struggle with pride, we need more and more applause even as it matters less and less. If you're trying to find satisfaction in other things, it just you, you let, you're left just unsatisfied. All of us are thirsty, and only Jesus can quench our thirst. And then the third point. Jesus is the Savior, and he came to save sinners. Praise God. I, I, I love, you know, I chase, I chase tangents sometimes. Um, I chase rabbits, I call it. It's the passage where Jesus is accused of befriending sinners and eating with them. 
And immediately he gives what? Three parables. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son, we sometimes say. And he, his point is, with the lost coin and lost sheep, yes, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's a savior and he came to save sinners, and you see that here. He didn't go in the city. I mean, you see, he's inter- he is interacting with the Samaritan woman. She has changed. And I think, I, you know, I don't know what, I don't want to read too much into the text here, but I think there's some s- symbolic thing going on here that she just leaves. John mentioned she leaves her water pot behind and goes into the city. I mean, she left a valuable possession behind. I mean, go back in the city and say, come see a man who's told me everything I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? She's changed. Jesus is the Savior. It's what John's pointing out as you journey through John's gospel, he's the Messiah, and he came to save sinners. So the question for each of you this morning is this. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? Is he your treasure? Is he your treasure? Have you been changed? Take comfort from the story of the Samaritan woman. I'm going to close this in prayer. I've got some questions. I don't know if we have time for them, but five minutes, okay, I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll have time for discussion. Father, we are, I am, we are thankful, so thankful that we have your word and have these narrative passages here to see how lives have been changed by you. Lord, we take comfort and we rejoice in your work, in your atoning work on the cross. We praise you, our great God and King. I pray that during these next few minutes that you may be honored and just in our time of discussion may be edifying. And Lord, may we seek to praise you wholeheartedly as we go into this next hour and worship with our brothers and sisters. I pray these things in your name. Amen.